Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on the role of China in the BD process from the 2021 Immuno-Oncology 360 Summit. For more information about the Immuno-Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Well, many thanks for um, all three of you joining us. Let me introduce you first. Um, so, um, where's my screen gone? There we go. So, Angus Angus Grant is the Chief Business Officer from Beijing. Uh, Wayman Tang, the Global Business Head from IMAB, and Mita Chatterjee, the Global um, Business Development Head from Legend. Um, all have had and um, will likely continue to have significant success in both taking their products into the Western markets, but also in the case of at least one of you, taking Western products into China. So it's a real privilege. And I think it's very, very timely given some very recent developments, both with JNJ and Legend, but also with Beijing, that we could put this panel here today um, because it really follows on quite nicely from some of the points that I mentioned in, in the keynote I just gave. So maybe to, to kick off, one of the things which I know investors are very focused on is um, the risk of competition in Western markets from China-derived drugs. And I showed a slide previously listing a number of PD-1 assets, and we've had within that class, Lily with Innovent take Tyvit. Uh, we've had um, Beijing that licensed Tizlizumab to, to, um, to Novartis. Um, the key question I always get is, will the FDA or the EMA really approve a drug which has solely been developed in Chinese patients into Western markets, given differences in ethnicity, standardization of protocols. So I'd love to hear your views, given your interaction with the agencies, given you're, you're doing exactly that with your partners. So uh, whichever one of you wants to, to go first. Well, I think they've already done it. Um, and the proof is in Burkinza with Beijing getting approved by the FDA for mantle cell with the predominant uh, data coming from China. So <clears throat> the FDA is perfectly willing to look at data uh, from other countries um, and, and even approve drugs based on that data. Uh, for fair disclosure, I used to work for the FDA. Um, uh, and so then the question is, it, now will they look at uh, additional programs, broader programs in, in more prevalent diseases? Uh, and and we, we certainly believe so. At Beijing, the, the broad clinical program uh, for Tisley that we partnered with Novartis is, uh, is a combination of uh, global data uh, so there's a lot of data from China, but also a lot of data from a lot of other countries. So they're truly global programs. So we have uh, good confidence that the FDA will will review and successfully approve those applications. Yeah, actually, uh, Andy, I totally agree with what uh, Dr. Grant just said. Um, based on my previous interaction with US FDA, uh, if you look at the LUO and uh, laws, there's no uh, requirement of the data you have to generate it in the United States or this thing. But with, even with that said, to approve your drug in the United States on the market, if you do not conduct the trial on the market, it will still be challenging. Yeah, that's from commercial purpose. Uh, because you don't have your PI, you're missing your um, you know, basic physician education period. Uh, so I really doubt about any, for any big drug 
or meaningful drug if you want to market in the in the states or even in Europe, you do not conduct any trial in the market. Uh, to reach a commercial success will be really challenging in my personal view. So I would still say it has to be balanced as a uh, you know company wise. And I think meet it's a little bit different for you because although the initial trials by legend were done in China, the regulatory trials I think have been done in Western markets. That's correct. So the initial trials were investigator initiated trials uh, that generated a <clears throat> fair amount of very positive data. But post uh, collaboration with Janssen, uh, we're doing global studies, but it's, you know, um, an IND was filed with the FDA here and, and for Europe. And in relation to, um, and you, you mentioned Angus um, Brookinza, um, which was a refractory small indication um, with a sort of unmet medical need. So um, two questions. Number one, you kind of touched upon it, the confidence in being able to jump using that as a precedent um, to a much more prevalent patient population. So that'd be one. And then the other one would be, um, you have thoughts on how the EMA views the same issue. Does it have a similar approach to the FDA? Yeah, I think it it's, it comes down to what was mentioned as a minute ago, that the when the FDA reviews applications, they look at uh, the, the previous patient treatment uh, paradigm, the inclusion-exclusion criteria. Uh, they, they look to see that uh, the data is comparable um, for patients uh, in the territory, whether it be the, the FDA or the EMA. Uh, so I think I think the world has moved along. And, and um, one of the, I think, the exciting things that's happened in China has been the, the, the harmonization of the way clinical trials run and conducted in China is, is, is much more consistent with the ICH. Um, and so you can run trials in, in China and Japan and Europe and U.S., and and the data it really becomes quite interchangeable if you're following the same good clinical practices, uh, the same standards of quality. Uh, you've you've got good clinical trial design. Uh, you're capturing the right kind of patients to put into the trial, and you're interpreting the data in a consistent fashion. So I think the regulatory agencies are are having an easier time now uh, looking at, at data from multiple countries and applying it to their own territory, and unless they they do believe there's a, a difference in the prior treatment paradigm. Uh, there's a difference in the treatment practices in their ter territory or country, uh, or, or if there is an ethnicity difference that they need to pick up and test. Um, so I think it's it's it really hopefully comes down to good science and good medicine, um, independent of where you where you run the trial. So maybe just following on from that, um, you've touched upon some of it. Um, China as a, um, a CRO or as an increasingly important part of a global development program, both for an established class of drugs, where obviously there's somewhat less risk, but also for a first-in-class innovative drug. Um, one might imagine that just given the sheer numbers of patients, um, as well as cost, it could be very highly attractive, but that's quite a sort of superficial assessment from someone who's looking in from the outside. Um, so it's easy to think everything's easy until you've actually got your boots on the ground. So, so is that a fair assessment? What am I missing in terms of stumbling blocks? Because you spoke to harmonization. There's no doubt there's lots of patients there. I suspect the price, the patient acquisition cost is, is lower. 
So what are the, the caveats that one would need to be aware of that one might not think about unless one has direct experience? Well, I think that's right. And, and Beijing's built out a, a clinical team of over 1,500 to be able to run trials globally, but also to be able to <clears throat> take advantage of the large population in China. Um, as you know, when you're running clinical trials, wherever you're running them, uh, getting patients into clinical trials is, is essentially a rate limiting step. Uh, there are only so many patients willing to join clinical trials, um, and and there's a lot of competition in certain disease areas and certain uh, uh, drug classes uh, in order to get the patients into the clinical trials. So, so having a country with a, the just the, the raw population that uh, that China has, and and having uh, the, the practice of medicine be uh, remarkably similar for a number of these diseases, does open up a frontier for access to more patients, more hospitals. Um, and you need to, you need the scale and the ability to be able to get to it because it's, it's a big country, um, and then the regulatory acumen to to manage the uh, agencies. So, if I might add, I mean, to your question, uh, CAR T is a different space, right? Uh -huh. It's a little bit more complicated, uh, and uh, so we're a little bit behind uh, in terms of the development for the CAR T types of therapies than, say, the antibodies. They're very stringent enrollment criteria. As you know, the side effect profiles are very different. And so <clears throat> I think we need to be mindful of, you know, local standard of care, um, getting into hospitals where um, there's a lot of close collaboration with the um, with, with patient management. There, there has to be a lot of sort of direct interaction between the chief clinician and the patient. And this involves uh, nursing, pharmacies, uh, neurology, et cetera, et cetera, to handle the side effects. Uh, appropriately. So it's something that we're, it's something that's being developed, but we need to have more hospitals that are certified centers of excellence where they have all these in place along with, you know, the, the, um, the appropriate, again, expertise to handle these. It's happening, but we're not there yet. And in, sorry, yeah, I, no, I was just going to say, so in terms of accessing the large volumes of patients, you know, we can't get access to them just yet. You're not going to go to community hospitals. I mean, these are centers of excellence, right, that you have to focus on. Yeah, I, I just, uh, and, you know, adding one, uh, my point is that um, Mila and uh, Angus both gave very good points about, you know, patient population. Uh, it's also very true that, uh, you know, most of the hospital, which are approved for conducting global trial are uh, uh, basically top level, what we call triple A uh, hospitals. However, getting into China, in my personal view, there is uh, even the government or regulatory agency has done uh, most, I, I would say they the changed the most for from all the government point of view, they, they ease a lot, uh, put roll out a lot of rules, uh, which is drug development uh, restriction, which I really like. Uh, however, we, even with all these new rules come out, it's very close to the US. For any new drugs, especially first-in-class drugs, you want to get into uh, phase one trial in China, the approval process is still slower. That's why in IMAR, for a lot of our first-in-class or best-in-class drugs, we normally started first uh, phase one trial 
in the U.S. first. Uh, we we built a huge. Um, I was you know about thirty clinician team in the United States, and also for when you conduct a trial in the uh, in in China, different hospitals, even with different PIs, their um, like uh, understanding of the uh, uh, harmonization law may be slightly different. And there's one thing which I think is uh, really intriguing to me is. I think maybe that Mira will be have more information about the cross department budget rules. So especially for cell and the gene therapy, you you need to keep the patient in the hospital for uh, you know evaluation. Uh, that may involve a different department and how the budget is allocated in China is uh, managed differently. So that that kind of thing is. Slightly different from the United States, uh, all of the trial people need to be to be aware, and also uh, human genome science rules is very seriously um, conducted or I mean enforced. Uh, so all those things, I think there will be improvement. There'll be more clear of guidance. But when you get in there, we should be really careful about do not step on the pedal. <laughs> Um, I, I, yeah, I think I think uh, that's uh, experience some companies have experienced in in China to date. Um, so, so one thing that that I was curious about is um, patients lost to follow up is um, a challenge, and um, drug developers in the West try to minimize that. Um, I'm wondering, is it a lesser or a greater issue in China in terms of um, losing track? Is there culturally a greater willingness to be followed up and therefore you don't have to chase patients or is this a global phenomenon with no differences? Uh, <clears throat> for us, we don't have enough patient numbers really to really comment on that, but certainly there are cultural issues too. Sometimes patients don't want to stay in the ICU or they just want to go home, but those are just anecdotal. Um, yes, sure. I, really, I can't make a gross statement right now for CAR T. For cell therapy, yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a comment other than I think it's, as you say, in any global clinical trial or any regional clinical trial, you need to make sure your clinical team uh, does a really good job of uh, of managing the site, managing the investigators, and, and making sure the patients are being uh, uh, well tracked and, and well monitored. Uh, but I don't have a comparison to say which country is better than another country at at, at retaining patients on trials. So, so maybe we could segue to um, business development and, and deal making because all three of your companies have done substantial deals, but all very different with Western companies. So J and J is arguably the most unique um, in terms of the deal they've done with Legend, and um, I think that talking about the manufacturing that you're doing um, globally, I think, is also very interesting, which I hadn't fully appreciated. So maybe Mita, you could start, but then we could talk both from you know, IMAP's point of view in terms of your CD47 with AVI and then um, Angus with the very recently announced Tisley deal. Yeah, so you know, the it was a terrific uh, uh, sort of win-win, if you would, for both both parties. Um, 
Legend took advantage of the IIT system in China to generate a fair amount of data. It was actually 74 patients worth of data in <clears throat> relapsed refractory multiple myeloma. And this uh, caught the attention um, of a number of multinationals. And in the end, uh, we signed the deal with Janssen. Um, so it's a, it's a co-development, co-commercialization commercialization deal 50-50 uh, worldwide, except for China, where um, Legend has 70% um, and Janssen has 30%. It was also a deal that, you know, one of the <clears throat> important elements of the deal were, was that J&J would help Legend grow to become a multinational. And so as part of that, we will, we are gearing up for manufacturing and such that post-approval, we will be the manufacturer for uh, Janssen. Uh, and there are complexities there, but we're building a presence in the U.S., in the EU, and in China. Um, but I think it was a terrific deal because both parties win. J&J um, is the IND holder, and you, you know, everywhere except for China, where uh, uh, Legend is the IND holder in China. Um, but as you might imagine, part of my role is to manage the alliance, and that makes for some very interesting uh, alliance conversations, as you have a very large organization like Janssen and a small growing organization like Legend, uh, sort of <clears throat> essentially working together in a collaborative way. Yeah, I, I totally agree, because that's the Legend and the J&J deal philosophy structure uh, it's very unique. I, I would say it's it's great deal. Um, you know, I like it a lot. Uh, but as of the um, um, the I the deal, um, let let me step back to putting you know in this way. Uh, in the, for the China biopharmaceutical, I view it as two things has an advantage. One is, uh, as Dr. Grant already mentioned, the patient population, and. Uh, Another one is the market, which is, you know, 25 patient population. If you look at the, the cancer uh, case, new case each year, uh, for whatever reason, China's new pa cancer patient number is always number one in the last few years. So that means there's huge unmet medical needs. However, the biotech uh, and the uh, pharma in previous 10 or 15 years, mostly focusing on copycat and, you know, on licensing in, which I remember started with licensing in. We license, uh, have strategic collaboration with Morphosis, Fairling, we license in a lot of, you know, medicines to address China market. We're using the, exactly the advantage. So, but in the meantime, you know, we realized as a biotech, you have to go out to compete in global market. And so we built a very strong uh, in-house R&D. We were definitely looking for first-in-class and also differentiated assets. That's how we build our CD47. And we will develop a CD47 for in China, but we, there's a huge market out of China too, but out of China is 75% of the market. market. And also, and you may mention about in other talk about cost issues, there's still definitely an advantage. So we innovate in China and we definitely need somebody like ABV to help us to uh, basically speed the development up in the United States and Europe 
and then uh, you know capture the outside China market value for any innovative product coming out of uh, from IMAP uh, pipeline. So it's win-win for both of us. And then Angus, maybe you want to talk to probably the most recently, actually it is the most recently deal because it was only a week ago, um, with Novartis for, for Tisley, um, which is interesting because it was a very significant upfront sum for you know, what is a late to market entrant. Um, and, and why, because I'm sure that there was not just one partner, what was it about the structure of the deal and the partner that made it so attractive? Well, it's, it's certainly a, a medicine that's had an interesting history. Um, and I've had a weird piece of that history. I was at Celgene when we did the deal between uh, Beijing and, and Celgene for Tisley uh, back in uh, 2017, July 2017, when we closed it. Um, and and then with the purchase of, of Celgene by Bristol Myers, it, it caused the rights to revert back to Beijing. Um, Beijing bought a, a, a number of reasons that, that Celgene did the deal with Beijing um, uh, beyond Tisley, but also a commercialization agreement uh, uh, between the two companies as well. Uh, but with Tisley, um, with, with Celgene, the program further broadened into a very broad program into multiple indications. Um, and, and after the right, rights reverted back to, to Beijing, Beijing continued to expand the development of Tisley in, in a lot of uh, registration trials worldwide. And I think that was uh, what caught the eye of other companies that wanted to add uh, a mature uh, you know, PD-1 into the portfolio. There's also, uh, you know, not all of the uh, PD-1s and PDL-1s have performed the same. Um, we, we've seen some that that haven't performed very well, and some that have performed better than others. And uh, we think we think Tisley is a very good antibody, uh, has more characteristics similar to Keytruda, uh, and so uh, we've we've developed a very broad data uh, base in these clinical trials. And I think that was what was appealing to Novartis. Um, they have their own program, but with part of it, it uh, sort of suffered a setback in a pivotal trial. And Novartis, uh, it was in fact in your last session, you listed a number of products, some from Novartis and some from others, where I think a lot of companies, uh, Celgene's motivation to do the collaboration with Tisley was not just the, the PD-1, but the combinatorial strategy. And um, I think Novartis is also uh, a company with a very broad and deep pipeline uh, that will benefit by having a good combinatorial partner uh, in Tisley. And one of the, the hallmarks of the, the, the deal we struck and one of the the key ingredients, if you may, in, in uh, coming up with this, uh, Nita mentioned sort of the win-win principle. And, and one of the things we did, because we're both interested in these combinations, you also mentioned in your last session that, that Beijing has a Tidget in combination with Tisley. Um, we wanted to be able to pursue our combinations with all speed and effort, and they want to continue combinations with all speed and effort. So we made sure that there was sort of no breaks on uh, the collaboration uh, from pursuing uh, multiple combinations. So I think that was one of the key drivers for where we found a good harmony and good synergy between the two companies. And uh, we're super excited. Um, Novartis, obviously, it's a great company, a great oncology franchise. Um, we're really looking forward to the collaboration. We're looking forward to the combinations we do in the future that will address new and unmet medical needs. I think one thing which is seldom seen in the industry 
um, is, and maybe not everyone on the call has aware, but you're running a head-to-head trial against Keytruda as part of a three-armed trial, including your Tidger antagonist, which is a path that few dare to tread, given some of the, uh, the, the pain experience, less so in oncology, but certainly in other therapeutic areas. Um, so maybe you could talk to that and the, the rationale behind doing that and why you included that. Was it a combination of components because you needed it for the Tidget or was it you just felt that, you know, it's expression of confidence given as you outlined, you feel it's just an exceptional molecule with likely similar efficacy to Keytruda? It's really a combination of all of those points. And, and, and you're right. I mean, I've been in, in oncology drug development in different capacities for quite a few years now. Um, I hate to say that I started my career with lax cells and IL-2. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it is rare that you, companies decide to do a superiority trial um, or go head-to-head. Uh, oftentimes, it's more a non-inferiority trial. Um, and so it, it's, it, it, it does take a certain amount of confidence in a molecule to, to do that. Um, and, and there are several, several motivations behind the trial to do that. Um, so, so, so I want to end on a couple of questions and, and hopefully we'll, we'll have a bit of time for Q&A at the end. But given I showed you the price reductions in the NDRL for uh, PD-1 antagonists, and I think as other categories get more crowded, we're going to see something similar for BTK inhibitors, PARP inhibitors, and so on and so forth. Do you think Western companies are going to make a return, you know, first in class maybe, but the density of pop, of, of local competition in so many spaces would seem to be unclear that China is going to yield the rewards that many had initially hoped. So I'm, I'm interested in whether you think that is an overstatement. I'm, that's one thing. And then the second, um, and, and maybe I, I put this to Wei Min so you can think about it whilst I'm, I'm asking, um, the ability to license Western drugs in China, because obviously you've licensed the macrogenics drug, the farin drug, and, and also uh, the morphosis drug and how you see the dynamics playing out so basically taking innovation the other way so i'll, I'll go to um the first question so the outlook for western pharma being able to monetize dr- their drugs in china to the extent of what their initial expectations were given the local competition you want me to answer first or well i i, I was going to go to you for the second question given your business model so maybe i okay. If that's okay. Or- yeah. Well, we, we've Go we've taken it. we've taken yeah. some drugs, uh, you know, if you call the sort of Western medicines, and taken them to China, monetize them. It, it's 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 a dynamic marketplace, and uh, I'm a, a simple BD guy, not a marketing person. Um, but it, it is fascinating to see the the, the change, the rate of change, um, both from the, the regulatory perspective, but also the reimbursement perspective. Um, and and it's I think it's important. You know the, the companies are facile and adapt to to the landscape, but there's such a large patient population. You just you just have to be compelled by that, and and as the country is uh, uh, very supportive of developing innovative drugs for the patients, um, I, I think it's an exciting place to be. I, th- I think that the way to turn that question around, Andrew, probably flip it on its head is is will the U.S. pricing stay the way it is mm-hmm. um, versus uh, how do you look at the, the, the sort of the China or other countries pricing? Um, the great thing is when you're a scientist and a physician, 
uh, we're in the business of developing medicines for patients that, that really cuts across all countries, barriers, boundaries. Uh, Beijing's motto is cancer has no borders, neither do we. Um, but, but as the, the, the industry becomes even more globalized, you, you have to think there's going to be some normalization of pricing across territories. Well, you, um, have, you yeah. have EQRX is obviously its whole business model yeah. dedicated to that point, And it's going to be yeah. interesting how they address some of those uh, reimbursement and access hurdles and perverse economics and, you know, exactly that. And I, I didn't go there just because, you know, the expertise that we have assembled is more yeah. than on the commercial side, but it, it's clearly a, a massively important topic. So I think you make yeah. a great point about the sustainability of U.S. pricing. Um, I, I just want to give Wayman a chance to, to talk on the, the um, in-license point of view and whether there's you'd like to say anything there. If not, then we can probably leave it and we can go straight to Q&A because I know Kate mentioned there's some questions. Well, maybe I just, just say uh, a few things. Um, I think in-licensing will still be there for China. Uh, it will not go away, especially a lot of drugs such like uh, the morphosis, Thirty-eight molecules, which Grant, uh, Dr. Grant may be very well known, was initially returned from Celgene because there's no way to like uh, to develop it outside of China. However, we view it that we identified that op opportunity windows, so that's why we licensed in, and we are quickly developing, and we are going to file BOA by the end of this year or early next year. So those kind, you know, the in licensing is very important. Uh, you know. The, uh, Dr. Grant answer your um, pricing issues, which, you know, again, I will say that's a very big question. I don't think we can address that. Um, even, you know, Europe is paying lower costs than the United States. We has to be very reasonable in pricing, has to be balanced, uh, driving the profit from all over the world. U.S. cannot pay all the profit, but, you, you know, China, well, the price cannot be all go to zero either. Uh, so it has to be balanced. Yeah. Right, so thank you so much. I can see Kate's appeared on the screen, so I think we're going to have a move on the stage. But thank you all so much for engaging discussion. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Amino Oncology 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit io360summit.com. Thank you.